Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity to gather together as family, to do this thing that is so very critical to our spiritual walks, Father, to be built up in the truth that's meant to set us free. That is the very word of God, the Logos, the same word that you sent down to pay the price so that we can do something as precious as this this evening. So thank you, Father, for doing that. Thank you for all your grace and your love, and thank you for equipping us to go out and fulfill and pick up where Jesus left off uh, and fulfill the Great Commission to seek and to save that which is lost. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for giving us the courage to do so by means of faith. Thank you for propping us up. Thank you for warning us as to the devices of the devil who hates that we're doing this very thing, not just as individuals, but also as a congregation, Father. So we thank you for building us up as part of the body of your Son. Of course, we are most grateful and thankful for your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt so we might have his righteousness imputed to us, to our account, so we might spend eternity with you. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this message title is, Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? Introduction, Part 7. I really like the way that Tuesday's lesson began. Um, I often like the other side of the fence perspective. Um, thank God for what you don't have. And how often do we do that? We seem so intent on praying for and appreciating the things we do have, but in God's infinite wisdom, Shouldn't we also, excuse me, think about the things that we don't have by divine providence, even though we might ask for them? So thank God for what you don't have. Maybe you don't have something because you wouldn't be able to handle it. God won't, quote, bless you with a curse, but Satan will. Perfect example. This is why so many Americans are simultaneously wealthy and antagonistic to Christ. Who do you think is blessing them out? Who do you think blesses anyone out when it's not God's will? Because Satan's really smart, and he will give you things that you want that God doesn't want for you. And if you take them, if you lack the discernment or the self-control or the right motivation you're going to end up someplace that you don't need to be. And that thing that you think is such a blessing, oh, and I, you know, we've all done it and we've all seen it. Oh, it's God loves me. He's blessing me out with this and that and the other. And you just sit back and it's like watching a car wreck in slow motion. So just um, thank God for the things that we don't have. Because God knows that... Uh, 
if we're not careful, Satan will give them to us. And we'll be a statistic, so to speak. But maybe you don't have something because you wouldn't be able to handle it. Whenever we think along these lines, we can't help but think about folks like Gideon, who had to fight an army of tens of thousands um, with merely 300 soldiers. Go to Judges 7-2. Judges 7-2. The problem with receiving things that you shouldn't have is that we often begin to edify our self-esteem by these things. We begin to attribute, in other words, our so-called successes in life, even in the spiritual life, to such things. And God doesn't want that. Judges 7.2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. That's why he didn't want Gideon to go with a lot of soldiers that could have, by fleshly standards, competed with the opponent. He wanted them to be and to understand that it was God that was about to deliver them. So he sent them with 300. The Bible is chock full of examples where God diminishes fleshly abilities so that the parties involved cannot attribute their success to anyone but God alone. Go to Psalm 44.3. Psalm 44.3. And anytime you see this kind of frequency, you know that it spills into your own life. That God's not going to give you things that aren't good for you. Why? Or good as far as you're concerned, accommodating to you. Why? Because you might take credit for it, frankly. Psalm 44.3, For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm in the light of your presence, for you favored them. You see? That's a consistent theme. And here's one last one to drive the point on the board home. Go to Deuteronomy 8.16. Deuteronomy 8.16, so the Lord God doesn't want anyone to artificially attribute success, um, especially not in the spiritual life, but in any sense of the word, outside of the providence of God. Deuteronomy 8.16, in the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. You see, that's again um, this recurring theme that God doesn't want us to take credit. So thank God for the things you don't have because maybe you're the type of person that if you had it, you would take credit for your own success. This brings us back to why are the apostles so encouraging? And for the sake of balance up here on the board, same theme, glory be to God, one of the key lessons in studying out the apostles is not necessarily that God will always use unexceptional men, but rather that he can and does use any kind of person, 
regardless of their natural abilities. In other words, it doesn't matter. That's the point. It doesn't matter. And by virtue of the way the flesh is, he constantly has to say, I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to give you that because if I do, you're going to attribute, you're going to take credit for my good work. And I do all these things to my glory. So one of the key lessons in studying out the apostles is not necessarily that God will always use unexceptional men, but rather that he can and does use any kind of person, regardless of their natural abilities. All the Spirit's been trying to do here on this vein of thought in our lessons is divorce these two things. Natural abilities, righteousness, two separate things altogether. doesn't matter if you have a lot of natural abilities or hardly any. God's the one who gives. This past week, we considered that God owns the balances and scales, as well as the weights that tip them. You can throw as much self-righteousness on one of God's scales, and it's not going to budge. It's not going to budge. But any bit of his own righteousness will move the scales, and that's what we've been studying, that he owns the balances and the scales, as well as the weights that tip them. What this means, fundamentally, is that the only thing that has any positive effect on his scale is his own righteousness. Up here on the board, <clears throat> glory be to God. The substance of what he chooses to impart his righteousness to isn't really the issue. In other words, the receiver of said righteousness could be in any precondition whatsoever. Think of human beings, right? Any precondition whatsoever. But if he chooses to give his righteousness to that person, then guess what? There's weight on his scale of values. So the substance of what he chooses to impart his righteousness to isn't really the issue. The issue is his righteousness being present, for it is the thing that has mass on his balance and scale. Romans 3.22. Let's do that one last, well, let's give that one last look. Go to Romans 3.21. Uh, Romans 3 in general is a wonderful passage that we've read twice now in our studies. But I need to point something else out to you that occurred to me as I was reviewing it this morning. Again, all he's trying to do is separate these two. doesn't matter how you come to the table. Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all uh, those who believe. Obviously, the context there was Paul was making the distinction between the context that would have been at that point in time between Jews and Gentiles, but the principle remains. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Now, that's the important phrase up here on the board that I wanted to just highlight for you. For there is no distinction. Think of it this way. We all fail miserably to live up to God's divine standard. So it doesn't really matter what we, quote, bring to the table in terms of self-righteousness. God's righteousness is independent from man's. That's the whole point. You could be the most righteous, like the Pharisees, or the most uneducated, the most so-called unrighteous, so to speak, uh, as a Gentile from the Jewish perspective. 
But God doesn't care. God says, I will give you my righteousness by faith. So God's righteousness is independent from man's, and that's that separation. So you see this, obviously, if you're sort of wise to what the Spirit's doing, He's, he's really guarding you from making any false doctrines in the soul, that you have to be, you know, unspectacular to be uh, really fruitful in the spiritual life, that you have to be this way or just like an apostle or, you know, uneducated or educated or whatever, uh, to be spectacular or anything. You don't. It's irrelevant, frankly. The only thing that matters is humility. And anybody can have that. So God's righteousness is independent from man's. So we might clarify the point on the board this way. It doesn't matter how a person is deemed righteous, strictly speaking, but rather that God has chosen to give righteousness to them. It doesn't matter how a person is deemed righteous, strictly speaking, but rather that God has chosen to give righteousness to them. That's what's important, that God's righteousness is what tips his scales. The apostles are a perfect example of this, though not the only, of course. For example, in the midst of religious intellectualism, that's the context if you haven't figured it out yet, in the midst of religious intellectualism, um, their example was that God can and will choose, quote, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. That's 1 Corinthians 1.27. So in the most practical, common denominator form, we might say that we are shining examples of God's imputed and imparted righteousness when we do one simple thing, follow Jesus. Let me say that again. In the most practical, common denominator form, in other words, anybody can follow Jesus, right? doesn't matter if you're smart, dumb, sideways, upside down, doesn't matter. Anyone can choose to follow Jesus. So in the most practical, common denominator form, we might say that we are shining examples of God's imputed and imparted righteousness when we follow Jesus. You want to know the great fruit? I mean, obviously it's to love. But if you're that, if you're abiding in Him, then you're following Him. And that's what Jesus said Himself up here on the board. We'll see a little bit more on that. But this is how you're the shining example of God's righteousness. You follow Jesus. If Jesus' ministry was defined by, quote, to seek and to save, Luke 19.10, then his disciples ought to carry on that mission. It's that simple. 2 Corinthians 11.3, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It really is that simple. That was his mission. That ought to be his disciples' mission. And if we want to talk about righteousness, things that God cares about, really what he cares about is that we follow Jesus. We have tremendous example after example. We also have God the Holy Spirit, Christ's Spirit in us that will guide us, convict us on what this means. But if we want to talk about imputed and imparted righteousness, it means to follow Jesus. So if His ministry was defined by seeking and saving, then ours ought to be. That's the point. It's that simple. Any believer can evangelize someone. Is there a more righteous thing we could ever do? Ask yourself that. On the grand scale of things, what is God's most wonderful desire? 
that all should be saved and come to the knowledge of Him, right? What did Jesus say? I came to do that work. <laughs> I came to reap a harvest. I came to seek and to save. Is there more righteous thing we could ever do than to evangelize anybody then? Not really. Not really. I mean, that's when the angels sing. So there really isn't. So we do all this talking, especially in America, we're so confused. We do all this talking about doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. And a lot of it's good, but at the end of the day, the, 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 the most precious thing we could do to bring glory to God is follow Jesus. And Jesus gave himself up as an example. And what did he say? Follow me. It's that simple. It's not that hard. It, you know, we sometimes prefer it wasn't that simple because it wouldn't be so convicting. So you may say to yourself, you know, I was thinking about this, maybe out of frustration or from, you know, broken heart, something like, you know, nobody I give the gospel to seems to believe. Nobody I give the gospel to seems to believe. Well, let me encourage you with a little analogy. In other words, I don't want you to think, and God doesn't want you to think, that you're not doing something righteous. Even if nobody seems to believe, your job is not to convert somebody. Your job is to sow the seed. So I want you to be encouraged. That's what he's saying. And anybody can do it. So here's the little analogy to help out maybe. A farmer hires an unskilled man to work his fields. The hired hand knows nothing about agriculture, but is willing to work hard for his new boss. The hired hand goes home one day with a couple of tomatoes picked ripe from the field that day. He shares the fruit with his friend who asks him, Hey, how does a tomato grow from a seed to such a tasty, ripened fruit? And the man unabashedly says, you know, I have no idea. <laughs> they both laugh, and they enjoy the tomato. The end. Honestly, that's the end. That's the end. We can find the moral of the story here. Go to 1 Corinthians 3.7. 1 Corinthians 3.7. You want to know the moral of that story? And I hope you're encouraged by it. The way maybe, not maybe, you know that they had to be encouraged. The apostles were encouraged by it. I mean, frankly, they probably faced more um, opposition than we ever will. I mean, you got anybody trying to kill you? They were encouraged. They didn't stop. They just kept working. First Corinthians, why? Well, one of the things is you have, if you understand the truth about what your job is, then you're not, you're delivered from the burden, in other words. First Corinthians 3, 7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So the point of the analogy is that we simply have a job to do. And it's never, you ready? It's never to cause the growth, only to sow the seed. Our job is not to cause the growth, only to 
sow the seed, as Jesus depicted in his parable of the soils. However, to sow this seed, one must be a willingly available laborer. Right? Yeah. That's our job, to be humble, to be willingly available. Now, here's where our apostle's example continues to bear fruit in our own understanding. Did the apostles ever sit still for too long? I'm not saying they didn't rest. I'm not saying that. I'm saying overall, read the book of Acts, let's say. Did the apostles ever sit still? Were they stagnant? Uh, did their faith become stale? I'm not saying it didn't waver once in a while, but as a changed individuals. Or did they do righteous things and go out as Jesus commanded them in the Great Commission and sow some seed? The answer is that Jesus sent his apostles out to sow the seed so that he could reap the harvest. Go to Matthew 9.35. Matthew 9.35. So they went out and they had a job to do, just like we have a job to do, and we ought to be encouraged. And I'm telling you right now, if you think it's tough now, I'm, I, it had to be almost impossible back then. Seriously. It was viciously difficult to sow the seed. But yet that was the commission. The answer is that Jesus sent his apostles out to sow the seed so that he could reap the harvest. Matthew 9.35 Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Before, uh, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest, a.k.a. pray that others are willing to evangelize. For example, to do and to work God's fields. So the apostles were among the few workers evangelizing during Jesus' time. You, I mean, some of you ever feel that way? That, you know, you're the only one around that's trying to get people saved? Family gatherings, work gatherings, uh, any kind of gathering. Seems like nobody's talking about Jesus. Nobody cares. So the labor is a few. But the harvest... Is bountiful. Whatever that means. It means there's still hope. It means he may not ever see what's going on with that seed. How does a tomato grow? I don't know. How does someone, how does God convert someone? You may never see the fruit of your labor, but that's not the point. Your point, the point is for you to get out there. So the apostles were among the few workers evangelizing during Jesus' time, and so it behooved them to pray for others to join the effort, to get up and get outside and, and get to work. Now, on that note, just a little added perspective on sowing seed. A farmer cannot sow any seed that will bear any harvestable fruit unless he sows it in the field where the fertile soil is. Likewise. As evangelists, we must sow the gospel seed in God's field 
in the lives of others. Spiritual nerds talk about sowing seed, but they never actually get their hands dirty. Right? It would be like being an um, armchair farmer who watches YouTube videos literally on how tomato plants grow. Well, let me tell you what goes on in the mitochondria of the plant. Have you ever planted a... No, I haven't. Um, that's not real fruit, you know. That's a flat screen of pixels. It's not a real tomato. You can't bite it. It's a screen, right? Yeah. Well, then get out there. Plant a few seeds. You don't have to know everything that goes on, on how God chooses to convert a soul, who he chooses. Now, this came up a bit on Tuesday, too, so I want to give you a balance statement because some of you are like, want to go out. It's uncomfortable out there. Okay, so look, I have to give you both sides. That's between you and the Lord. What you do with these lessons up here on the board as a balance statement before any of you start freaking out. You cannot force true religion. James 1.27 So please do not pretend. God doesn't want phonies sowing the seed of love. Four, the receivers might realize the insincerity and question Christ, Christ, Christianity altogether. They're a bunch of phonies. That guy, I can tell that guy didn't, that guy had no desire to be there. He just had these pamphlets and he was like whipping them at people. <laughs> you know, like he was on a quota. I go back and I have the, you know, I, if I gave the number, the most number of coins out, I win the you know, I win the Easter basket up near the pulpit. So you can't force heart issues. Don't worry about it. God will change you. Now, is that emphasis still there? You bet. Is that the fruit of a certain type of maturity in the spiritual life? You bet. Is, that, is there anything more righteous to do than to save a soul? I'd argue no. So the emphasis is still there, but you have to find that spot for yourself. Where do you exist? Where's your heart compared to the ultimate, to Jesus himself, to the purest minister, the purest evangelist to ever walk the face of the earth? Where do you stand compared to him? If you're going to follow him, then follow him. But don't play these weird games either. And don't be a phony. You know, don't fake it till you make it type thing. I hate that saying. God doesn't want phonies sowing the seed of love. For the receivers might realize the insincerity and question Christianity altogether. And I was reflecting on this. Um, and this was a weird thing for me, honestly. One of the greatest recent lessons uh, I learned in my own life as an evangelist, because we're all evangelists, was out at Horseneck Beach handing out gospel tracts. Scott was walking around asking people, have you heard the good news? And I loved it. And I, the pastor who has taught this man over nearly almost a decade now, sat holding the bag, mostly silent, in a support role. 
And I prayed on it. I said, geez, why the heck wasn't I moved to actually grab, you know, half the stack and go out there? So I prayed on it, even while standing there. And the reality was that I just wasn't, I guess, rightly motivated. My heart was in it. I loved what was going on. Loved seeing someone, you know, like Scott do his thing. Someone who's properly motivated. But I wasn't properly motivated to take on the task of actually approaching strangers and handing them tracks. It's not that I couldn't. Trust me, I could. I've, God knows I've stepped out on more faith and done much bigger things in much bigger ways than that. But I sat back, and he told me to sit back and learn. And so I learned this lesson that in that moment, my heart wasn't settled on that aspect of the mission at least not within that ad hoc ministry that had formed on the, board, the boardwalk that day. I was totally content, happy, and properly motivated to carry the bag. And Scott was totally motivated to let me carry the bag. Great. Great. You know, sometimes you're Paul, sometimes you're Barnabas. Sometimes you're the mouthpiece, sometimes you're the encourager. Sometimes you're the one who was back home stuffing the bag with food and tracks and everything else before the missionary went out. So you know what? The big lesson after praying on it afterwards was that my role was perfectly fine. That's the point of the board. It was perfectly fine. It was my flesh that was getting in the way. I was evangel shaming myself. <laughs> it, that's wrong. It's about motivation. It's about your heart being changed. It's about you going out with the right motivation. So the balance statement on the board, you cannot force true religion, so please do not pretend God doesn't want phonies sowing a seed of love. You know, our hearts must be in it for it to be legitimate fruit. Motivation is very important, as we've learned time and again. There are some things that a man like Scott does that I'm not motivated to do, and vice versa. And the same goes for all of you and anyone else in the body of Christ. That's why we have an entire chapter. You ready for that? An entire chapter in 1 Corinthians, you know, chapter 12, dedicated to explaining that there are many different parts of the body of Christ. In fact, the latest blog is titled, How to Carry a Cup of Coffee Without Spilling It. And it speaks directly to the balance statement on the board. Directly to it. We, we shouldn't evangelize people. We shouldn't um, pressure people. We shouldn't try to control people. So let me give you some additional encouragement. Knowing that neither Jesus nor his disciples were teaching 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nor did any of them cover every possible manner 
in which a human being can and does evangelize others. Remember, there was a context of Jesus' ministry, just like there was a context to the apostles' ministry, just like there's a context to your ministry. And everyone here has one. Let's call it spreading and living the gospel. If we're not verbalizing the gospel, then we ought to live it for all to see its fruit. You don't have to be a wonderful communicator. Some of us have gifts of communication, so whatever. You don't have to be a fantastic communicator to spread and live the gospel. Our perfect example of this is Jesus. Since every believer's life is different, every ministry is too. You don't have Jesus' ministry. Thank God, because you'd end up on a cross. You don't have an apostles, except for one, you'd be dead, eventually. So, every believer is different. And if you're not a great communicator, then live it. Then live it. And get, be ready to give a good defense when the time comes. What this means is that while I stand behind a pulpit, you may never be called to do so. Does this mean that you've somehow missed the mark or that you won't receive the, you know, the highest grade possible at the Bema seat? Because <laughs> you didn't stand behind a pulpit, you didn't hand out tracks at a, at, a, at a beach, or you didn't do this or you didn't do that like other people did? May it never be. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul refutes such a thing. As a matter of fact, he says, those gifts that don't have such a high esteem tied to them, we, the rest of the body, ought to build them up. Why do you think he would say such a thing? Do you want to know why? It's because people have fleshes. And then they, they inevitably start looking over the fence, right? Everybody's got their little home, and it's like, I wonder what uh, Sally's doing over there. Oh, she's out evangelizing people. Honey, let's go. Get in the car. How many tracks she got? She got 50. It looks like she got 50 tracks. Put 100 in the car. <laughs> Sally, how many people did you evangelize today? <laughs> Paul's like, what are you kidding me? So I was just reflecting on this um, just to sort of drive it home. While I'm standing behind this pulpit, which is an honorable thing to do, and obviously my motivation is correct, even now, Frank Westcott is driving some poor nurse crazy <laughs> in Dighton Nursing Home. How do I know? Because I've seen it. And he tells me all the time. He's like, yeah, kind of drive crazier. Frank's been holed up in several hospitals for nine months now. Nine months, and for a good period of that time, his legs didn't work. So he was really pretty much at the mercy. And he was, you know, sick. And every time I go to see him, either he or his nurses tell me about him reading his Bible and exuding peace and contentment in spite of the ordeal he's been through. You know who's not there speaking up for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Me. Or you. And you know what? That's perfectly fine. That's the point. That's the whole point. 
There's nothing worse than, than spoiling diversity. Diversity is good. I mean, God's the author of it. You need to pray about how God wants you to spread the gospel. While you might be encouraged by others fulfilling the plan for their lives, do not fret about being motivated differently. That is the beauty of God creating you. This, we're all different. Diversity is good. Some of you are going to do it this way. Some of you are going to do it that way. And it does not matter if anybody else in your life ever sees you doing it. Does not matter whatsoever. What matters is God. So you need to pray about how God wants you to spread the gospel. While you might be encouraged by others fulfilling the plan for their lives, do not fret about being motivated differently. That is the beauty of God creating you. Excuse me, you. From Tuesday's message up here on the board, passing on encouragement, you and I have been granted the privilege and opportunity to bring life-changing truth to others. Don't think you can't. You have the seed of the true gospel to sow as well as the love of Christ. So however that manifests in your life, embrace it. Embrace it. This is what Jesus taught his apostles and what he wants each one of us to know today. Go to John 15, 8. John 15, 8. It's the funniest thing because part of, I believe, part of, you know, a, a shepherd's job is to, to keep an eye out on things. You know, as a congregation, you see this sort of groundswells of wonderful deliverance and freedom, right? And all these, these wonderful activities. And then you also see the threat of the flesh. The flesh is really good at taking, and I'm not saying this is happening now. I'm protecting you from it. The flesh is really good at taking something beautiful and almost instantaneously perverting it. Right? What do the, what do the apostles do? Hey, which one of us is the greatest? So you, get, you were made an apostle. Think about that. You've been made an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah himself chose you, one of twelve. Instead of saying, this is ridiculous, unbelievable blessing, we get the opportunity to go out and do this thing. Hey, which one of us is the greatest? What is wrong with people? You don't think that happens with so-called lesser people? You don't think that happens in churches like this one? Anytime there's a big groundswell of activity and wonderful things that goes on in a congregation, the flesh is right there lurking. And then Satan with his demons are throwing fiery darts. Hey, what, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing that? Hey, look over there. Why aren't they doing that? Hey, yeah, why aren't you doing that? Right? Next thing you know, something beautiful becomes a perversion. Next thing you know, it's a problem. John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. You can't bear much fruit if you're choking each other. Right? Be careful you don't devour one another. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's what he wants. Prove to be my disciples. 
To our previous point regarding following Jesus, any believer can evangelize someone. Is there, more, is there a more righteous thing we could ever do? Think about it. It's a wonderful thing to save a soul, so to speak. And this is glorified. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Sowing the gospel seed so that the Lord may reap the harvest is just about the most righteous thing a believer can do to bring glory to God in time. That's why he left you here. Now again, keep the balance statement in view. Hence Jesus' mention of those who, whose soil bears fruit. Up here on the board. In Matthew 13, 23, in his explanation of the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, 23, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. You know, even thirtyfold is much fruit. That's a lot of fruit. Thirtyfold. That's a lot of fruit. What does the flesh do? I want to be the one that does sixty. No, I want to be the top. I want to do a hundred. Hurry up, honey. Get in the car. They got 30 tracks? We got 60. Oh, yeah, they got 60. We got 100. Don't be stupid. <laughs> John 15, 8. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I, also, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So, just to put a stick in the mud, anyone who abides in Jesus will share his heart for evangelism. Anyone who abides in Jesus, anyone who loves others, is going to want to evangelize them. If you have a genuine... I don't know about you, and I, hate, I feel like I'm talking too much about myself, but whatever, it's his doing. Probably my biggest reason for ever weeping is because of this very topic, that people are unsaved. So I can't tell, all I can tell you is that's not my heart. That's, that's, uh, I didn't, I wasn't changed like that before I was changed by Jesus Christ until I share in his love, until I abide in his love, as I abide in his love more and more even. All I really want to do is like Paul. I just want to know Christ and him crucified. I guess I'm becoming boring. I know some of you can relate. But that's what love is. Love wants people to be saved. Love is selfless, but it's never phony either. So don't try to fake it. But what we do have still is this shining example that we looked at this past week of Jesus' ministry. And if you abide in his love, then you're going to abide in his ministry even. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Go complete the work. Go sow some seed. That's what I did. I came to seek and to save. I lived 2,000 years ago. You live now. I didn't live in America. You do. So guess what? Just like point three on the board. He addressed his audience in language they would understand and that would resonate with them. I mean, okay, getting a time capsule right now. Go back 2,000 years ago. Hang around with Jesus and talk just the way you talk. Oh, dude, that's dope. What? What? 
Not that anybody here talks like that. But, you know what I mean? Just our language alone, our reference points. So he trained his successors, the apostles, to do the same. And then so on and so forth. During this past week's lesson, we considered the apostles' experiences by reading Acts 4, verse 20. We had what we have seen and heard. In other words, it wasn't just about academic preparation. Nor is it for you. And this is part of our encouragement from the apostles. The apostles were OJT trained as much as they were academically trained. He said, follow me. Let me show you what sowing seed looks like. Let me show you what love expressing itself looks like. Let me show you what compassion looks like. Let me show you what mercy looks like. We, we just watched that, uh, uh, that movie uh, Jonah last night on Pure Flix. Very good, by the way. And it was all about mercy. And Jonah had to experience it, didn't he? What are you doing over here, pouting? <laughs> let, me, let me show you a little mercy here. I'm going to give you a plant, and then the worm's going to eat it. It's going to fall, and you're going to have a hissy fit. But yet you want me to kill all these people. So I'm going to show you what mercy is. We need it. Um, and so did the apostles. What we have seen and heard, notice that the apostles' confidence pivoted on their experiences not just what Jesus taught them verbally, but what he taught them through his example. For example, Jesus said this, follow me. There was much more to Jesus' words than simply a physical act. He was calling his apostles, as he has with each one of us, to follow his example. He then sent these men out so that others could follow their example in Christ. And so on throughout human history. Following is an experience. Now concentrate. This idea that keeps coming back up regarding sowing seed gets at the very core of the gospel message that we just spent over a year on. We may not understand exactly how a tomato grows or how God causes the growth, a la 1 Corinthians 3.7. But we can be faithful sowers, right? I mean, the apostles didn't know exactly when, how, and a person would be saved, but they just kept sowing the seed. So just reflecting on that, over the past year and a half, we've been given the gospel proper, stated clearly and propositionally, just like how Jesus taught those in the first half of his ministry. The other facet of evangelism, beyond just showing up to work faithfully, to sow is, you must sow the right seed. You must sow the right seed. So the apostles not only showed up for work faithfully to sow the seed, they sowed the right seed. If your boss, the farmer, says to you, Go over to field three, lot B, and plant some corn. And you go and plant some cucumber seeds. Well, the harvest is going to be no good. 
<laughs> it's the same with the gospel seed. You must sow the right seed. That's our job. Our job is not to be cons- overly concerned with the soils per se, other than to recognize them for what they are. Our job is to sow the right seed up here in the board. That was a point that came up this past week, sowing seed. Facts about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, whether believed or not, and not the issue in salvation, strictly speaking. The issue is a person's heart response to the gospel, which includes these facts, of course, as a result of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. All of this is implicit All of this is implicit when Jesus began teaching his apostles about how to sow the seed. Up here on the board. Matthew 13, 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. He doesn't dedicate any real time on the personality of the sower or even the seed. It's assumed, it's implied, it's implicit that the sower is a faithful sower of the true seed. Now, here's where we were instructed to stop, and here's why. Understanding the parables. Due to the nature of parables being word pictures meant to reveal profound spiritual lessons, it is imperative that you first understand the context of the parable. The speaker, the audience, cultural norm, time, place, and circumstances. We must have seen this about five or six times already. Why? Because it's important. We know the apostles were unexceptional men. We've learned this. But we also know that they were humble enough to ask questions. Go to Matthew 13.10. Matthew 13.10. Yeah, they were, quote, unexceptional men. But we also know that they were humble enough to ask questions. Matthew 13, 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why? I mean, when's the last time you asked God why? And I don't mean whining in prayer. I mean, why? Seriously, why? Why didn't you give me that thing? I'm like the start of class. Hey, I'm just curious, God. Why didn't you make me this way or that way? Why didn't you give me this thing or that thing? Humble people accept that they don't know everything. However, arrogance is unteachable. The apostles were teaching teachable Jews. The arrogant Jews were not. For example, the Pharisees. Arrogance is unteachable. Arrogance doesn't ask questions. At least not looking for honest answers. Arrogance typically asks lawyering type questions. You know, did he really say? Or, you know, are you sure about this? Or are you, you sure about that? Leading questions, attorney-like. But they don't really want to know the truth. They don't ask questions about truth, per se, because they don't want to know the truth. They don't need the truth, you see. They're unteachable. Jesus answered the question. Look at Matthew thirteen ten again. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And in 13, he says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, 
nor do they understand. So, as we've learned, if nothing else, the apostles possessed at least a bit of humility. And you know what God does with humility? God gives grace to the humble. The apostles received hearing as a grace gift because they were humble enough to receive it. Beforehand, they were unable to hear, but were available, a.k.a. humble. I've had many conversations over the past years with people who, oddly enough, have approached me, and feel free to relate to this because I know a lot of you have the same circumstance. People will come up to you, and when you answer their questions about the truth in the Bible, they don't actually want to hear it. They actually don't want to hear it. Maybe they can't. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe they can't. Just as a side note, some of these people were highly intelligent. So this is getting back to the mainstream studies on the apostles. Uneducated men understood the parables. Jesus' parables are unlocked not by intellect, but by honest pursuit of truth. The Holy Spirit will reveal said truth to those with ears to hear. Matthew 13, 9. The apostles prove this. Now, another balance statement that I only had a chance to give you once uh, a couple of Thursdays ago up here on the board. And I spoke to this a little earlier tonight even. The issue of Jesus' choosing the twelve is not that the apostles were unexceptional as compared to the Pharisees or the intellectuals, but rather it is to establish that it doesn't matter. Paul stands as the counterweight to our analysis, proving the same principle, but being an intellect, a Pharisee even. The point is, again, as I started this evening, the Spirit's just trying to divorce these things. Self-righteousness, God's righteousness. The only thing that has any weight in God's scales is His own righteousness. So it does not matter how you come to the table. Both collectives, if you would, of apostles proved that. You had the uneducated and you had the super-educated. And God used both. So the point is, do not create false doctrines here. Just because the first 12 were so-called uneducated, you're no better, with no better chance of receiving grace, whether you're dumb or smart. The point is that it doesn't matter. Do not make a false doctrine out of any of this. You can have character, faith, and purity, regardless of intellect. This is why the apostles are truly so very encouraging. But, I think I'll tease you with this. I think I'm going to have to pick this up on Sunday. I'll leave you with this. We cannot make a case study a doctrine. We cannot make a case study a doctrine. So let me close with this final thought. I've seen this many times, even with my conversation with folks uh, in, in churches even. They'll use the case study approach to propose a broader, sweeping doctrine. My favorite go-to one is Job's wife. She must have been such a witch. One line, and we're going to character slander a woman married to the blameless and upright man. I think he probably would have had a little better discernment than to marry a complete witch. <laughs> right? Not that it, maybe he did. That's the whole point. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But we don't have the, right, the runway 
to say that. That's, that's my go-to, because it's the shortest one, too. It's like the shortest one, right? But people love to use what I call case studies, and let me explain the term. I remember being in sales offices in the high-tech industry for years, and one of the favorite documents sales folks like to receive from marketing were case studies. And I remember being in marketing and writing quite a few of them, and people loved them. A case study was nothing more than a documented account of a product being purchased and then deployed in a customer environment. That's what it was. The bigger the deployment and the bigger the customer in the case study, the more street value it had to a sales team pitching to a different customer. Well, Lowe's did it. Don't you, mom and pop, hardware store want to do it too? Well, Home Depot did it. Or, you know, MIT did it. Don't you want to do it, community college? Case studies. The downfall of the case study is that some salespeople would make it gospel. In other words, they'd pigeonhole the product into a case study, assuming all customers would want and need to deploy a product the way it was deployed in the case study. And that's no good. For the one simple reason that different customers need to deploy products differently. Yeah. My point is this, and I guess I'll close with this. We're out of time. Case studies aren't doctrine. While biblical accounts of the apostles' lives are tremendously valuable, we cannot make the mistake of making doctrines out of everything we read about them. Case in point. Case study. Just because the apostles were uneducated doesn't mean that only uneducated people will ever excel spiritually. Yeah. Just because the apostles were uneducated doesn't mean that only uneducated people will ever excel spiritually. That's foolishness. Is that what they were? Yeah. Were they the so-called great apostles? Yeah. Did they prove a point against the intellectuals at the time? Absolutely. Um, should we make that gospel? Should we make that a doctrine? No. No, not at all. We have to move beyond that. We have to be edified and encouraged by their unique context, the way that God used them uniquely in their role 2,000 years ago. In an, in an environment that we can't fathom right now. We don't live in a theocracy, right? We don't have that government theology mixture and holier-than-thou leadership that's intermingled with government. We don't have that. But they did. And so they stood out like a sore thumb. And that was wonderful, and that's exactly how... But we cannot take that as doctrine. We can't seal it up and go, okay, good. Why? And I'll leave you this. The Apostle Paul keeps us straight on this point. Here's the balanced viewpoint, and I swear I'm going to end. God's sovereign choices. The original 12 prove that God doesn't need intellectuals to spread the gospel. And Paul proves that God can use an intellectual to spread the same gospel. So where does that leave us? What's the great example from the Apostles? It doesn't matter what you show up with. That's the whole point. It does not matter 
what you show up with, these things are divorced. Time and time and time, whatever facet we're talking about, whatever case study we're looking at in the Bible regarding the apostles, it doesn't matter. It's all by God's grace that anybody does anything righteous in time. It doesn't matter. Amen? And we should be encouraged by that, right? I hope so. Right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege of studying your word together as family. Thank you for keeping it simple, uh, for reminding us that our flesh really is just trying to get in the, get in the way, Father, to uh, just pervert things that are pure. Father, we ask for your righteousness and that you impart it to us as we continue to study out these principles that we are encouraged not just academically but through experience as we are given such faith to take such things out to a world, Father, that's just a mess. May that faith shine. May we be beacons of light on a hill the way your word describes us, the way we ought to be. Thank you for the privilege of doing so. We ask for traveling mercies as we go forth, spreading the good news. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.